Turn in your Bible, please, and although our text of consideration and sermons has been Judges 11, verses 29 through 40. Relating to that text, we read from the inspired psalmist, Psalm 32, and verses 1 through 9. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Just by way of a note, that word translated by our translators there, covered, is the very word used in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, pitch. Pitch, which is a cover and a seal. Blessed is he whose sin is pitched. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sins unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of the great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Turn with me again, if you will, please, and stand with me. Sing together the words of hymn number 558. And must I part with all I have, my dearest Lord, for Thee? It is but right since Thou hast done much more than. Yes, let it go One look from thee Will more than make amends For all the losses I sustain Compare with me, son. 
supremely good, divinely bright and fair. Savior of souls, could I from thee a single smile From paradise to Gehenna. In a moment of unguarded zeal. I will attempt today to finish a message that was begun two Lord's days ago. But it is actually this entire message is part three of this my attempt to preach through this section Judges chapter 11 verses 29 through 40 we have covered extensively this record you know the contents of it well. We need not spend time reviewing it. You have heard it and heard it and heard it over again. We spent two messages attempting only to go through the record and set it before your mind. And then on that last Lord's Day that we took up part three, my part three was to Extract from this text lessons, lessons to our hearts from this inspired record. I gave you already three of them. I gave you number one, the lesson that well-meaning is not automatically well-doing, or if you prefer, well-meaning is not the same thing as well-doing. Surely it was a great motive, as motives go, that prompted Jephthah to make this vow. It was and no commentator that I could find in history has ever denied that he meant well. He meant well. But his well-meaning as a motive, while it is honorable, yet in the fervor of his motive, it was given expression in the passions of his ignorance so that his well-meaning did not result in well-doing. I gave you a second lesson. The lesson that ignorance, like a poison, holds a man, holds men in error. Ignorance. Holds men in error. I thought about it again. I would that if I were a topical preacher, I would stop there and bring at least one or more messages on that thought alone. Ignorance holds men in ignorance, in, in the error. We are truly in a day of massive Ignorance. Ignorance has been almost glorified. 
and how much damage has been done through zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. In some circles, I will say it again, I said it in the message, in some circles, knowledge is not only despised and rejected, but ignorance is actually excused and washed away in the elixir of zeal. And worse than that, ignorance in certain circles is exalted to the throne of honor as if it were some kind of badge of piety. But it is not so. God is not honored in ignorance. Ignorance cost Jephthah his sweetest joy. And it cost his daughter her very life. And all that in a zeal for God. Hmm. There are few evils more dangerous to true piety than than a religious zealot without knowledge. But then, thirdly, I gave you a lesson. I said there's a lesson in this record of the unrelenting evil influences of a long stay in godless service. Poor Jephthah. How long had he been banished into the land of the godless Amorites? And now in a crisis moment, the stain of that evil influence bleeds out into the fabric, into the fabric of Jephthah's finest hour. Victory over the Ammonites. Stained, I said. The fabric of that victory march is stained by sin that he learned from too long stay among the enemies of God. Oh, if we could learn this lesson. But then today we take up a new, our pursuit of the lessons from this text. Closely related to that third lesson, I give you a fourth lesson. Would that we might learn today what great damage may be done in only a moment. What great damage can be done in only a moment? What great reversals may be wrought in one unguarded, undisciplined emotion? You remember the story? Jephthah is facing the greatest enemy of Israel. They, as I reminded you a number of times, they are not just set on conquering Israel. We know from the text and from the history that they are set on Israel's absolute annihilation. Purge the earth of their very existence. And this is what Jephthah is facing. And in the face of that and with his great knowledge of such affairs, he himself being a man of war and a man of lifetime of engaging this very enemy, he knows well what he's facing and all of his emotions are wrought up into a fever pitch. And he begins to express himself in the face of it in prayer. And if I may use that colloquialism, that expression of ours, he's caught up in the moment. 
And in that caught up moment, he opens his mouth. Verse 35, he makes reference to it. He said it came to pass when he saw her, his daughter, that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord. I've opened my mouth. The Hebrew word is the word potsaw. And it is only ever used in the scripture to express a rash, hasty, foolish outburst. It literally translates to gape open in haste. I said in just a moment, I said in just a moment, in just a moment, disaster is brought to his life, to his posterity, through his daughter, in just a moment. He opened his mouth. No wonder the psalmist pleads and cries out in Psalm 141 in verse 3, Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. In Psalm 19, in the 19th Psalm, in verse 13, you hear the psalmist cry out the same heartfelt emotion. Psalm 19 and verse 13, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Oh, blessed Lord, help me and deliver me from a hasty word. Because in that single moment, I may bring upon myself and upon others sorrow, pain, and shame. In a moment, in a moment, I give you lesson number five. Learn a lesson from this text. How shocking we may find it to be when God takes us at our word. Whoa, how shocking we may find it to be when God takes us at our word. Jephthah said, and God did. Jephthah said, and God did. How well one commentator summed this lesson for us when he said, how it astonishes men when God takes them at their word. Not that they do not mean what they say at the time, but they do not realize all that it implies. God ever does this, says this theologian. God ever does this, that he may educate the heart in loving sacrifice and reveal the grandeur and absoluteness of his claim upon us. God may just shock us by taking us at our word and we never expected it. This commentator said further, this is what God expects. Have we ever vowed to him? 
If so, have we paid our vow? Negligence in this matter will explain much that distresses and perplexes us. Honesty towards God. Honesty towards God. How you practice it. Yet this is the true proof of the righteous. May I put it in my own words to the admonition of your heart. Be careful what you speak when speaking to the king. He has the power to grant it in ways you cannot foresee. Be careful what you say when you're speaking to the king. He has the power to grant it and take you at your word in ways you could never foresee. Oh, God may give you what you ask for and then require of you what you promised. God may give you what you ask for but then require of you what you promised. I don't believe there's a one of us under the sound of this word that has not or does not or will not experience this truth. Be careful what you say, what you ask in the presence of the king. He has the power to grant it and in ways you cannot foresee. God give us grace. Oh, what heaviness. Oh, what contrition our hasty vows may cost us. Heaviness. That's a great word. Good old Puritan word. Heaviness. Let us make good use of our heaviness when God surprises us with the just consequence of our folly. I'm going slow this morning. I'm trying to go slow. I want you to take it in. I said let us make good use of the heaviness sometimes results when God surprises us. The just consequence of our folly. He took us at our word. Just to express that, dear old Roger said, now the Lord will have me sometimes bent. Hmm. The Lord will have me sometimes bent to search out my errors, corruptions, and disorders of heart and life. And going aside to ease my stomach of them, Confess and loathe and renounce and ask pardon for them. Now the Lord will have me to pray that his spirit may be restored to me in a greater measure that I may return with more liberty to his service and beware that I be not against again surfeited with that which I have vomited up. The world its pleasures, vain desire, vile and loathsome blood. This is good use of heaviness indeed. This is good use of heaviness. Be bent. Vomit up. Those corruptions that cause your pain. This, says Rogers, is good use of heaviness indeed. The house of such mourning is better than a house of feast. And to this end, oh, it were to be wished that damsels, women, as well as others, living in these days would set 
forth themselves against the world. Not in pride, boldness, niceness, and courtesy of fashion, but in modesty and grace and wisdom as this maiden did, which were manner of spectacle than to see many golden rings in a swine's snout. <laughs> 1650. Even then they had problem with women chasing after fashion instead of making good use of happiness. Oh, good use of happiness. That's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? We ought all to write that somewhere in our Bible. Just look at the thing and Contemplate it sometimes. Good use of heaviness. Modern psychology says, Oh, put that away. Put away the agony of inward examination. Be happy. But God says, in Psalm 26, Judge in verse 1, judge me, O Lord, for I've walked in mine integrity. I've trusted also in the Lord, therefore I'll not be, I shall not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins in my heart. Do this exercise on me. Bring this heaviness on me that I can search my heart. Psalm 129. In verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, the saint ought always and constantly to be engaged in this business of looking inside and making use of our heaviness and draw us near to God. We're not saved to be happy. We're saved to be holy. But now, I move to a lesson, another lesson, and this one is sometimes missed or misread. Lesson number six. Learn from this record of Jephthah and his experience. Learn that the work of God may triumph in our hands while we ourselves personally stumble terribly in our conformity to his likeness. I'll say it once more. The work of God may triumph in our hands while we ourselves personally Stumble terribly in our own conformity to his likeness. Oh, Jephthah went out. This record tells us. And he passed over, verse 32, under the children of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hand. He was absolutely successful. And the Lord's work was done. And he completed it in great triumph after he had made this foolhardy vow. The work of God triumphed in his hands while he himself had greatly sinned. Oh, there's a great lesson here. There's a great lesson for us all here. Let me remind you of this same exact experience in the life of another great servant of God, in the life of Moses. In chapter 20 and verse 9, you remember the story. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him 
Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank. And the beast also. Oh, you say hallelujah, praise God. Now there's a victory. There's a triumph. There's a success in the work of God. Yes, it is, but lead to the next verse. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Robbed in the hour of trial. Robbed of the privilege to share in it. Oh, there was triumph in the hands of Moses. While we know from the writing of the scripture that the spirit of God was grieved and disciplined. I won't engage with you in the controversy of what exactly Moses did wrong here. Volumes and volumes have been written on it. It makes no matter to me right now. I'm simply telling you it's very clear God was displeased with him. God was displeased with him. And yet, and yet, all of that multitude of Israel was watered Oh, can I tell you, God, in the words of Cooper in 1774, God moves in mysterious ways. So said Cooper, judge not with feeble sense. Oh, don't examine what's happening. Don't examine what's occurring. Don't examine the work of God and think, at all that that approves you in it. God may bring great victory and triumph while you are diminished in your soul. You'll walk. Oh yes. He may take a crooked stick and draw a straight line and hallelujah for it. But all the shame and sorrow being the crooked stick. The day of our greatest triumph may be the day of our greatest sorrow. Poor Jephthah. Poor Jephthah. Oh, victory. Ammon is destroyed. But poor Jephthah. The simple truth is you see, we're not always the same. We're not always consistent. We're not always in a stable state of constancy. We are unstable as the waves of the sea. But our God, Malachi 3.6, changeth not. And when we see the success of his word, his success, we dare not ascribe it to ourselves because he may bring great triumph when we are in the bowels of error. God's people find out, one commentator wrote, God's people find not themselves always in one tenor or ten either in inward joy and comfort in God or outward forwardness to our duties. Paul had his lifting up into the third heaven, but he had also his buffeting to abase him lower than the earth. Peter was ravished in spirit when he was in his heavenly trance before going to Cornelius, but we know he had his rare ebbings at other times. Elias, a man of men, a man of men for grace and familiarity with God, and that appeared by his real assumption 
into heaven bodily. But he was in a poor case when he was fain to flee from Jezebel and go 40 days fasting and mourning for the misery that lay upon him in the church. Oh, I say to you this morning, ours is an unstable condition indeed. But our God is faithful. Faithful to himself. Faithful to his word. So then let us never take to ourselves glory in the success of his work. Notice again, verse 32. So Jephthah passed over under the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them. The Lord did that. Oh, let us never take ourselves the glory of his work. His is the victory. Ours is the folly. But now I give you lesson number seven. Oh, how I wish. Oh, how I wish I could dispatch it with no mention of it at all. But I would be unfaithful to my calling to leave so great a lesson untaught. Lesson number seven. God will not spare even his people. Their greatest losses. Their greatest sorrow when sin has stained his service. God will not spare even his people. Their greatest losses, their greatest sorrows when sin has stained his service. Oh, how unlike us is our God. Oh, how unlike he is in his dealing with his children from the way we deal with our children as earthly parents. Sometimes our children do wrong. And as parents, we set about and we correct but oh, how often mercy will override perfect justice. And we will not exact from them the full price of what that error might have cost. But can I just teach you a lesson this morning? God is not an earthly parent. And he will. In his perfect holiness, he will exact perfect justice. And he will sometimes not spare us our greatest loss. God took the most precious thing Jephthah had. One theologian has wisely said this. And by this we learn that God for men's sin will not spare to deprive them of that which is most dear to them. One reason hereof is that the Lord means to humble them deeply. To cause them to descend into themselves more seriously. To purge out the sin that weighted them to mischief. And thus to prevent it. God may take the thing that is most precious. Yes, he will. And therefore this use we should make of this lesson. 
that whensoever, whensoever the Lord dealeth with us so, we should know that it is for the hardness of our hearts, which otherwise and without such breaking of them would not be softened. And let us the less marvel at it when we find it to be so. For though he have often gone about, gone about it by gentler means, yet we know they have not prevailed. So that we have driven him to deal most hardly with us and to handle us more roughly as to wound us so deeply by taking the things from us which are most dear to us. And if we are not to be accused for that our hearts are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but that we relent, let us know that God had sufficient cause to afflict us. Let us put our hand over our mouth. We have received nothing more of what our sins have deserved. Oh, the far-reaching blight that sin brings when it stains God's own people. You remember it well, I'm sure. When David said in Second Samuel chapter 12, and verse 15, And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare to David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child. And I can well imagine that as he besought the Lord, he remembered all those great mercies that he wrote about in those songs and might have thought to himself, I think he'll probably spare this. Maybe he'll forgive it. Maybe he won't take the child. So David besought God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the earth. Verse 17. The elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him from earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. It came to pass on the seventh day the child died. The servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, he spake, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voices. How will we then vex himself? How will he then vex himself if we tell him the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servant, Is the child dead? They said, He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Oh, God would not spare. David, this loss because sin had stained his service. You'll find it again difficult to read, actually. Difficult to read the words of Second Samuel chapter 18. Verse 31, Cushai came and Cushai said to David, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? Cushai answered, the enemies of my Lord the King and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt be as that young man is. 
The king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died to thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I said, I wish I could have avoided telling you this, but I must tell you from this text, God will not spare to take the most precious thing in your life. When sin has stained your service. May God help us to learn this lesson. Our God in his infinite unapproachable holiness. May take the most precious thing in your life. If sin stains your service. Sorrow that cannot. Be calmed. Sorrow that will not be relieved. May God help us to learn this lesson. Lessons. Lesson number eight. And I'll move quickly. I hope we learn from this text to pay your Vows. Pay your vows. We are living in a generation of unprecedented vow breaking. Is there anyone that can disagree with that? We are living in a generation of unprecedented vow breaking. Jephthah said in verse 35, I cannot go back. And his daughter said in verse 36, Do that which you vowed. Someone has very well said, There may be an occasional advantage in the vow in making a vow to bind our soul by solemn recognition of its obligations. But we are equally required to give God our all, whether we make a vow or not. Nothing is more weak, looking at Jephthah now, nothing is more weak than to make a vow at a time when we are not called to make a sacrifice. And then to prove unequal to the sacrifice when it's required. It is better to count the cost and refrain from making the vow if necessary. The vow is often only a sign of presumption. It would be well for us to turn our vows into prayers. And instead of promising that we will do some great thing, ask God to give us the grace to do it. Still viewed from the standpoint of devotion, there is something noble in the perfect surrendering of ourselves and the brave trustfulness that was in Jephthah's vow. And then he says this, pathetic as is the error of Jephthah, his magnificent fidelity is a model of religious heroism. It was a foolhardy vow and a sin against God. But it's noble that he kept the vow. I would admonish you, let your yeas be yea and your nays be nay without any vow. But I would admonish you to keep what vows you've made. Even this foolish, unguided, unlearned saint in the darkness of a limited revelation knew that he must keep the vow. And yet saints today trifle with commitments made 
to Almighty God. As if God would just turn his head and look away and not notice that you're not doing what you said you were going to do. Simeon said, when our vows are practicable, they must be kept. Even the observance of them be attended with great cost and trouble. And the attempting to set them aside by the pleas of inadvertence or of difficulty as attending the observance of them will only deceive our own souls and bring upon us the heavy displeasure of our God. Simeon says, don't try to make excuses with God and think he's going to accept them. We remember the judgments which God inflicted upon the whole Jewish nation in the time of David for Saul's impiety in violating an engagement which had been hastily contracted by Joshua 400 years before. And much more God will visit upon us in the eternal world the violation of engagements entered into by ourselves. Vow then unto the Lord if you see it good, but pay the vow. And say with David in Psalm 76, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vow which my lips have uttered and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. Pay your vows. Learn from this text. Number nine, and I hasten. Learn this lesson from this text. Children, at the very best, may be crosses to their parents. Jephthah said, Oh, alas, verse 35, my daughter, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. You say, what has she done wrong? Nothing. Nothing. She'd done nothing. Thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me. Why? What had she done? Nothing. Can I just say to you, your children, at their very best, may be crosses for you to bear. So then I warn you children, do not add to the surplus of your parents' sorrows by your sins. Children, we learn from this text, may be a sore sorrow and cross to a parent when they've done nothing wrong. So then, be warned, children, do not add to the surplus of your parents' sorrows by adding your sins. Well, did one commentator say, let it be an instruction for children. that They had not need to be crosses to their parents by looseness and disobedience. For their parents are many ways grieved by them in the other respects. As to see them crossed and brought behind hand in the world by poverty or by that that they cannot correct. By an outward estate. So for their other sundry troubles that often befall them. Through no error of their own, their parents are grieved in sorrow. And with these, when they look to have them stayed in their old age, 
than if they see them taken away by death or crossed by awkward circumstances and bad matches. If then they also with the like to these shall vex them in their life, how can they choose but bring their gray hairs to sorrow to the grave? Monsters therefore! Monsters they are! And unnatural children they are! Who knowing that for their very conception and birth they are occasions of grief and heaviness of heart to their parents. Many ways. How are they monsters who take thought for them also afterward in every part of their life to bring them up and provide for them? Monsters, I say, they are who do yet add more heart pain and greater grief to them by their unruliness, their loftiness of mind, their riot, their ill-spending of their time and their goods, their lewd companions, and many other ways. Monsters, he said three times. Monsters they are that would add to the sorrow and pain of their parents by their sin when they're sorrow enough just living their lives. Monsters. Oh, children, children this morning, now say to you that your parents will sorrow enough at life's unavoidable reversals. Don't add to their pain by the folly of your own making. This is a great word for our students we just sent off. Sorrows of plenty there will be. For their parents, when they're faithful, don't add to that by sin. I will close out this study in this 11th chapter with only one other lesson to our hearts, although there are so many more I could have drawn. I chose to leave behind. We could draw a lesson, for example, from verse 40. We could draw a lesson and have much to say about the value of a godly memorial to a nation. We're living in a cancel culture. Did you know that? We're living in a cancel culture. Verse 40 gives us every reason to believe there's a good use, a godly use for godly memorials to a nation. Israel remembered. Jephthah's daughter. It was good for them. But I leave you with just one more. And surely I have left the greatest lesson for the last. There is one supreme lesson in this text. If there is one supreme lesson in this text, although I have touched on it from many different angles already, there is one supreme lesson in this text, and it is this one. One sin. One sin may crush to death a lifetime of blessedness. Jephthah's daughter Crushed to death by one sin. I could not put the words better than those of another, and so I read theirs. Jephthah's daughter, the light of his home, the solace of his cares, was there to welcome him and to double his happiness by sharing it. And as he looked forward to the future, he might hope to see her be the mother of children who would perpetuate his name and his race. Such was his lot as God prepared it for him. But his own rash and perverse act 
springing from a culpable ignorance of the character of God and directed by heathen superstition and cruelty instead of by trust in the love and mercy of Jehovah poured an ingredient of extreme bitterness into this cup of joy and poisoned his whole life. The hour of triumph was turned into desolation. The bright home was made a house of mourning. What should have been years of peace and honor were turned into years of trouble and despair. And Jephthah had no one but himself to blame for this lamentable reverse. Alas, how often we can match this scene by similar instances of human perverseness embittering the sweet cup of life. A nation's career is often checked by crime or cruelty or treachery. An individual's life is marred by some act of ungodliness which entails a lifelong harvest of bitter fruits. Domestic enjoyment is destroyed by the sins of selfishness and self-willed folly. Bountiful gifts of a gracious providence, wealth and abundance. Splendid opportunities for good, intellectual endowments. Rare talents, or rather in a humbler life, openings for advancement, usefulness, which might have led to distinction, are through the perverse folly of their perverse possessors, worse than wasted. And dark shadows are thrown across what should have been the brightness of a happy life. And then men dare to speak of their bad luck. And murmur against the providence of God as if you could sow to the wind and not reap the whirlwind. Oh, Jephthah sowed to the wind in one second. And reaped the whirlwind of sorrow and agony. One sin! Can I say it to you one more time in a little bit different way? The joy of his life was crushed forever. In the hour of his triumph, the joy of his life was crushed forever and hers was ended in the dawning of its bloom by one sin. Oh, one sin. One sin. The weight of one's sin could drag your soul down to an eternal hell if it were possible for a human to have but one sin. It would drag them to the depths of hell. One sin. I warn you as adults. I warn you as elderlies. I warn you especially as children and youth. One sin can crush a lifetime of goodness. From paradise to Gehenna in a moment of unguarded folly. There's more lessons to be had from Jephthah's life in the next chapter. And God willing we shall see. Turn with me, if you will, please, in your hymn book. Stand with me. And we sing together hymn number 672.
I 